0: your favorite places at risk? How do we know when an ecosystem is under collapse? Find out on this episode of Boiling Point. Welcome back to Boiling Point, your favorite science radio show at Eastside 89.7 FM. Today in the studio, we have your two hosts, Sammy, myself, and joined by Liz. Hello. Oh, sorry, I did turn your mic on. Hello. (laughs) Great. Um, And today we're joined by Dr. Aniko Toth. Aniko is an ecosystem conservation research fellow at UNSW who assesses how at risk ecosystems are of collapsing due to climate change and human influences. Welcome, Aniko.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Great. Um, So what is ecosystem collapse when we say that as a term?
1: So ecosystem collapse happens when an ecosystem, as we've defined, it loses some of its defining features, or it loses some of the ecosystem services it provides, um, so much so that it transitions into something that we can define as a different ecosystem or um, potentially a collapsed state.
0: Great. And so... When you look at collapsed ecosystems, what are some of the key factors that you look at specifically? Are there certain signs that are universal, or are they different between the different ecosystems?
1: It's pretty much always different. So every ecosystem is extremely different. Um, Most of the ecosystems that we study haven't collapsed yet. And it's our job to actually come up with a way to define when that ecosystem has, has collapsed. And then in my work, we try and predict when or if that's going to happen and how imminent that is um, so that we can focus our management actions around that information.
0: Right. So this is sort of the test of like a, a risk assessment of, you know, how close we are to dis- like doomsday, for lack of a better word. Is is that
1: correct? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, There's a lot of different examples, but um, one of the classic ones is the Aral Sea. Um, If you guys know anything about the Aral Sea, I don't work on the Aral Sea, but it's a classic example that we like to give because it's um, a giant inland sea, right, which was the water was drawn out so much that almost all of it has dried up and whatever puddles of it are left are so saline that nothing can live in them Mm. Um, and the water is almost completely gone. So that's by definition a collapsed ecosystem.
0: Right. And so what are some of the factors that get an ecosystem to that point? We, you know, we mentioned climate change quite broadly, human impacts quite broadly. Is there anything sort of very specific that you can think of?
1: Well, um, so I work in a number of different ecosystems around the world, and I'm part of a very large international um, effort to sort of risk assess ecosystems um but for example one of the places where i work is antarctica and we haven't actually managed to do uh, any ecosystem ri- excuse me risk assessments in those uh, ecosystems yet but we know what those threats are and then and and one of them for antarctica specifically is because it's so isolated a lot of the times the moment any human steps foot on antarctica they bring invasive species And those invasive species have the ability to potentially, if they're cold tolerant or whatever, then um, they have the potential to completely change the ecosystems that are there. And so that might cause a collapse, for example. Mm. So um, working in Antarctica,
0: do you go there and collect samples? Like, What is the process of uh, assessing the risk of collapse in Antarctica?
1: So I didn't get to go there. Unfortunately, I got to I got to speak with a lot of people who have been there. Mm -hmm. And it was my job to try and collect and compile all of that information into something that will eventually become a series of risk assessments. Now, the first step to performing a risk assessment is to understand what our ecosystems are. And for Antarctica and for many places around the world, we don't even know that yet. So we have to first perform a classification. And it's not just any sort of classification. It's about the functionality of an ecosystem in such that uh, if you either perform a management action on that ecosystem, or you have a specific uh, disturbance of that ecosystem, then the ecosystems that you classify into one group should react the same way so that it's practical, so that it makes sense Um, and then when we take an action we can be relatively sure that it'll work the same across an ecosystem.
0: Right, and so what's an example of a a classification? So like for Antarctica, would that be, I'm trying, I'm like going back to, you know, fifth grade biology, like tundra? Uh,
1: Yeah, so that's kind of a broad one. We try to get a bit more specific in our ones and um, eventually Will they'll sort of regionally be localized but for example for Antarctica one big one is like penguin colonies right? They're very unique (laughs) you know they have a huge amount of nitrogen and other nutrients in the soil from the guano Um, you have these big vertebrates there in high concentrations, which isn't the case for most of Antarctica. Right. So that's one that most people would recognize. Is okay, so, so it's not
0: just like all of Antarctica, you subdivide Antarctica into the little sections based on different factors. So in one case, the presence of penguins, and then I'm assuming in others would be the presence of, say, krill, would change the, the classification.
1: Yeah, so we're focusing at the moment on... um on Antarctic terrestrial ice-free ecosystems. And I know that sounds a bit weird. yeah. (laughs) But uh, Antarctica isn't all ice, as you might think. That is shocking to me. (laughs) Very shocking. (laughs) Yeah. So Antarctica has got uh, about... I think it's about 2% of its uh, land is ice-free completely year-round. Oh, wow. Uh, And that's for a number of different reasons. Um, One of them being that uh for example uh, if you've heard of the mcmurdo dry valleys it's no. <laughs> uh one of it's the coldest desert in the world essentially oh. it's so arid that it doesn't get any moisture and so there's oh. no ice huh. yeah so okay. that's one of the examples <laughs>
0: that's so crazy cuz i i don't know i've always pictured like you know like the movie happy feet where it's just <laughs> completely snow everywhere oh, ice yeah yeah well
1: most of it is So we're actually focused on this very small uh, percentage of Antarctica. But most of the things in Antarctica actually live in these tiny patches. So most things can't actually live if there's only ice. So
0: happy feet lied to me?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, some penguins actually do have colonies on ice. Like (laughs) emperor penguins do have (laughs) colonies on ice. But Antarctica's fauna is made up of mosses, lichens, nematodes, things that can actually survive these crazy temperatures and wind and lack of sunlight and, and all that stuff. So um, m- much of it is microscopic. Mm-hmm. And uh, penguins are a fun example, because everyone knows what a penguin is. But uh, most of the stuff there is is much, much smaller than that, and not stuff you'd recognize. Mm-hmm.
0: And so on these ice-free areas of Antarctica, is that commonly where researchers go to do work
1: in Antarctica? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. ice-free areas tend to be easier to access. And so that's where people will build their research stations, and where ships will, you know, pull up or planes will land. And so of course, Um, This puts those areas more at risk of those invasive species that I talked about and of the human footprint and of, you know, whatever infrastructure that we're building. So humans themselves going there with however benevolently to research the fauna are among the greatest threats threatening some of these ecosystems because, you know, and there are hygiene procedures in place, Mm -hmm. of course, but it is still the human footprint that's one of the biggest threats.
0: So you said that you you don't go out to Antarctica yourself. Other researchers have gone. What type of things do they collect? Do they collect specimens, like little samples of dirt or something? Is that what they give you? Or what is is it that they bring back for you to use?
1: So people will collect a variety of things. Um, In ice-free areas, yeah, they'll um, sample various flora and fauna so whether there's mosses or lichens or microbes or whatever what have you they'll they'll do soil samples um, some people study the geology, although that's very poorly le- known around the continent overall mm-hmm. and um, what I ended up what I ended up getting is this big database of like where specific species have been found around the continent and then someone else has taken that and p- put it into this big model to like try and predict where the habitats or the habitat ranges of those things are and then i use that information plus all this satellite data which is the only thing we have for the whole continent right no one can go and sample soil everywhere on the continent right so we have satellite data which is just comes from you know satellites so we can get the whole continent and then we put that into these big Models and classification algorithms, and try and get something co- like coherent out of them. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Which just challenging, yeah. So you're yeah. putting this
0: data of species ranges mixed with satellite information about temperatures, wind patterns. I'm, I'm, get, am I on the right yeah, track? Absolutely, yet?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's about temperature. We have information about snowfall, um, wind, solar, elevation. Um, ruggedness so all of that stuff And, and that's actually a really important point as well because when we define an ecosystem we don't just want it to be about like the terrain or how warm it is or how much it rains or snows in Antarctica's case we also want it to be about what lives there and functionally what happens there so we wanted to build a classification that actually addresses both of those things Um, And so we did that um, for Antarctica. So we have these environmental layers combined with these layers about the species that live there. And then we combine those to get a classification that hopefully is going to get at what is the ecosystem actually there. So both of those aspects are really important.
0: Yeah. Very cool. So do you you do this in... Antarctica and then is it able I'm assuming the same model can't be used for places that aren't Antarctica um is there like different areas that you look at and do the same type of data before because I I know we were talking a little bit earlier about um peatlands and how you've worked with uh data from Finland peatlands before um you said that it's it's able to be used to more broadly apply to peatlands in general mm-hmm. so can you do the same thing with antarctica or like to other types of tundra like ecosystems or is it just within antarctica
1: So the Antarctic classification was for the whole continent, which, as you can imagine, is quite a huge undertaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's very specific to Antarctica. Some of the lessons learned eventually might be applicable to other cold ecosystems elsewhere. But that classification is quite uniquely Antarctic. The Peatlands work was a a bit different in that uh, those ecosystems are already classified and so we already know what types we have and sort of where they are and and um, what the differences between them are. And what I did with Peatlands was to actually do the risk assessment of collapse, which is what we talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that is applicable because we did the collapse assessment on a subset of peatlands which all happen to be in Finland but presumably our results are applicable across the range of these peatlands which occur all across the northern sort of colder climates across Russia and Canada and there's a lot of them so that would actually potentially apply more broadly all right okay
0: and also just to to backtrack a little bit because um I had to look this up, so I feel like some people may be curious as well. What is a peatland? Like, what makes a peatland a peatland? I'm very glad you asked.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So a peatland has peat, which is this very slowly decomposing plant matter that's not totally decomposed. It's essentially a wetland, so it has to be cold and wet, basically. And the reason that we really, really care about peatlands is because... Um, Even though they only cover about maybe 3% of the terrestrial surface of the earth, they have a massive um, store of soil carbon. So the moment you start to either dry them up and um, or burn them or climate change happens and they stop making peat, so the peat stops accumulating, they become a carbon source instead of a carbon sink, and for such a tiny percentage of the Earth's surface, they have they store something like um I think it's about a third of the world's soil carbon. Mm, and wow. the soil carbon is the largest reservoir. Um, it's bigger than all the above ground flora and fauna it's It's a massive store. it's about 600 something gigatons. stored in these wetlands right so we really care about trying to preserve them
0: right and so so if if these ecosystems collapse then they'll start emitting carbon into the atmosphere that's right previously but at the moment now that they're not collapsed are they taking are they taking carbon from the atmosphere and Storing it as they're building more and more peat layers yes. on top. Yeah, okay. slowly.
1: Yeah, mm. and so just to clarify that point as well, we have peatlands, or in patches, and some of them are collapsed because some of them have been mined or burned, but we still have a lot of them intact, mm. and so that's what we want to keep, and we want to um, help them get back to being peatlands if they've been, if they have been disturbed. Mm.
0: And what what is the benefit of you know humans? repurposing peatlands like what are they using them for because i'm picturing like you know just wet squishy decaying plant matter everywhere and i feel like that's not like prime real estate that's not like yeah, anyone's vacation absolutely, home. absolutely right
1: and and actually that is the reason that they've been drained so much is because a couple of decades ago people thought well these are a waste of space Let's drain them and put forests on them, which are more useful, or use them for agriculture right. or use them for other things, or oh let's just you know what let's just take all the peat out and burn it for energy mm. so uh that's a lot of what happened all through sort of the mid to late nineteen hundreds and then of course, people realized at one point, well, hang on, we're like destroying this like very important carbon reservoir that we want to stay in the soil. And so now there's all these initiatives being uh, born, I suppose, and, and very urgently being born um, to try and restore peatlands and use them for ecotourism. And I think there's like certain types of like low intensity agriculture that can be done on them or like opportunistic collecting Um yeah, they can be used for a number of things now that we like recognize how important they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a matter of defining those things and trying to veer toward using those things.
0: Yeah. How do you how do you restore a peatland once it's been dried up? Do you just wet it?
1: <laughs> that's, that's a big part of it, honestly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, this probably sounds like such a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: yeah, th- there's <laughs> a
1: lot of talk about re- re-wetting them. Yes. Mm, okay. Absolutely.
0: Huh. All right. And so, when you're doing these these uh, risk assessments of the peatlands, you've got these, you know, these classifications of the different peatlands. What do you do from there in a risk assessment? How do you determine how close they are to collapsing?
1: Yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> it's but okay, we, can, was, we can break it down. It was pretty cool, though. So I focus on a specific type mm-hmm. of uh, of Uh, mire or peatland. Uh, A mire is a peatland that's actively producing peat. Um, And so I focused on a type of mire called an appamire, which uh, is, it sort of lives in these depressions and actually has open water in it. Mm. Um, Next to it are usually these bogs, which are um, also peatlands, but they have thick layers of peat, which have grown above the water, and so there's no open water. Mm. Now the appamire is like really uh, important because it has these open water pools and so therefore it harbors like an aquatic food web it's like a breeding ground for birds it uh, diverts water from its its catchment downstream to rivers and it actually mitigates um, it helps if there's like a flood then it's like slows down the impact of the flood on downstream area so they're really quite uh, important so what we had to do was actually look at um the first thing that you do is you build a conceptual model of the ecosystem, where you write down sort of all the main processes and elements that make up that ecosystem. And then once you have a conceptual model, then you go in and try and determine when has this ecosystem collapsed? So what does it mean if this ecosystem has collapsed? And for an Apemeyer, um that point of collapse was when the open water pools were gone, right? Mm. Because what, what will happen? A couple of things could happen. It could be overgrown by bog. Um, it could be mined and just turn into like a muddy wasteland, or it could be drained and it um, and dry up and then other stuff grows on it and it stops producing peat. Mm-hmm. So when the open water pools were gone for our, for our specific type of mires, then we defined that as collapse. And then we had to get all of this data that all surrounding that information about when those open water pools would be gone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that data consists of quite a variety of things. Uh, we have uh, again we have satellite information which helps us differentiate between wet and dry areas of the land, so we can tell when stuff is drying out. Mm-hmm. And then we also had um, a whole, like, separate internal model, which was determining how much water was going to flow through those mires every year.
0: So, like, pre- precipitation,
1: yeah. yeah. So, temperature and precipitation. And because these mires are in cold areas, it actually had to snow, and the snow had to stay on the ground. Oh, wow, that's specific. Yeah, very specific. And this, like this, these are very specific to the ecosystem that you're assessing. Mm-hmm. So the snow has to stay on the ground in the winter. Then it has to melt in a big flood in the spring. And then, and if that doesn't happen, then the whole the thing gets acidified and it turns into sphagnum bog anyway. And so it is it's like quite complex. There's a lot going on in there.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess I'm I'm sort of equating it similarly to I, I think everybody had to do this when they join into like a science lab is you have to do a like safety risk assessment of like different hazards that could happen in the lab. And so I'm sort of like going back to that training session and saying like, okay, well, if it happened, if there's like a chemical spill in this area, you have to factor in different things than if there is a, you know, a chemical spill in a different area or a different type of hazard would would affect... Would affect this area more than that area. So I guess that's sort of what you're doing, but with much more variables, much more complex factors. Yeah, that's a
1: very good analogy, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and just like a regular risk assessment for the lab, we're trying to project it into the future and go, well, what's actually going to happen if this hazard comes to pass? Or, mm. you know, if the climate change is enough that we reach this threshold or something like that.
0: Right. And so when you've, when you have assessed the, the peatland for collapse, is it like what your output, is it like I give you a number in this many years, it'll collapse?
1: Yeah. So what we have, so this is um, the system that was invented by my current supervisor, um, David Keith, awesome guy. He's sort of leading this, global effort to try and risk assess everything. And we've actually made it uh, parallel to the IUCN IUCN Red List of Endangered Species. I think a lot of people have heard of the Red List of Endangered Species. What happens is you go in and you do a risk assessment for a species and then you classify it as either extinct, critically endangered, endangered, vulnerable, or near threatened or least concern. Those are the categories, right? And so those are all there's like a specific set of criteria of why a species might fit into that. Mm-hmm. So we've done the exact same thing for ecosystems now. And the IUCN has adopted this. It's called the IUCN Red List of Ecosystems. Oh, amazing. It's a whole thing, oh, right? You cool. can look this up. You can look this up. Great. Um, same uh, same classification. So uh, least concern, near threatened, et cetera. And then in order to... And you've you got to fit the ecosystem into one of those classes. And in order to do that, you have to determine what the probability of collapse for the ecosystem is for the next... It's uh, There's like various time frames you can use. So it's either like the next 50 years or the next 100 years. Um, what's the risk of collapse, right? So... Um, Based on the specific criteria and the specific numbers, you put the ecosystem into one of those groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay. How many eco? Uh, how many ecosystems actually have been like categorized so far? Is there actually a number for it or like a percentage?
1: Off the top of my head, I don't know, but there's quite a few. So Europe has done pretty much a comprehensive uh, assessment of sort of all of its ecosystems, and I believe North America has done. Yeah, I believe North America has done a comprehensive assessment. And then there's a lot of places around the world where uh, assessments are underway. So we're like trying to get all the ecosystems classified and start doing risk assessments. But as you can imagine, it's like a huge project, right? Because, you know, doing a risk assessment for one ecosystem takes a really long time and all I, what i described just previously for peatlands for Myers is actually only one of the five criteria that's needed for a total risk assessment of an ecosystem so it's like a lot of work right mm-hmm. wow. and there's a lot of people doing this and, and working on this and trying to make this comprehensive you know database of ecosystems risk mm-hmm. status standardized.
0: I'm wondering if, so I, I remember ages ago I was listening to NPR, National Public Radio in America, and they were talking about how it's difficult to communicate to, for example, developers what removing a particular ecosystem would do in terms of, like, how important that ecosystem is, trying to translate that to someone who whose mind is more business-oriented than science-oriented. And so they were trying to assign sort of a number values of like, you know, this would cost $50 million in 10 years if you remove this mangrove forest because it leaves the shore vulnerable to hurricane and storm surge uh, damage. Are you... Is that a factor within these IUCN ecosystem red lists as well? Of like, you know, if because you mentioned the these Appemeyers have the open water which can mitigate floods. Exactly. And so is does that put them at a higher level in the IUCN red list because they could impact, you know, human you know, human houses and communities? Or is that not a factor? So
1: what you're talking about is ecosystem services? Yes. Yeah. So if for anyone listening, the ecosystem services are sort of all of these things that ecosystems do for us that keeps us kind of happy, healthy and alive. Um almost pretty much everyone depends very heavily on ecosystem services. And for for these risk assessments, there's actually no valuation of how important they are to us. It's just about how at risk they are. But there's a whole separate group, international group doing ecosystem um, actual valuations and, and market values and all kinds of stuff. I'm not directly involved, but it does exist. Um, and it's definitely something that's being considered somewhere. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
0: All right, so yeah. I guess we're we're wrapping up now, and um, just wanted to throw out with just one final takeaway. What would be, you know, your advice to someone getting involved in science today?
1: Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, well, look, it's not a straight path. You need to try and look around, try in different things. And, um, like I did a whole bunch of research before I even started my PhD and I realized how much I love research. So don't feel like you have to jump straight into a degree or jump straight into something. Go and volunteer on like, a, whatever, a ship, um, a, a, a scientific vessel, go and volunteer in a museum. See if you can get like a summer job at a, at a, zoo or something and then see what what gets your interest up and what makes you happy and then go and do your degree. Let your interests and passion segue you into the degree that you really want.
0: Great. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Aniko Toth, for joining us today. You've been with Sammy, Liz, and Dr. Aniko Toth on Boiling Point. Thank you all so much for listening.